What are some of the most difficult problems we still have to solve in astronomy, astrophysics, cosmology? What are some of the big questions remaining? If we think of other new areas, and perhaps the most exciting development to many of us, and many of the younger uh, colleagues in my group, um, is um, discovering planets orbiting other stars, exoplanets. Um, the, the first of these was discovered um, in the 1990s, and uh, we now know that most of the stars we see in the sky are orbited by retinues of planets, just like the Sun is orbited by the Earth and the other familiar planets. And this makes the night sky much more interesting, as it were. Although the planets, of course, um, are much, much, much fainter than the stars, and so it's very, very hard to observe the planets. Hey everyone, in this episode I speak to Martin Rees about his life and career. Martin is a professor of cosmology and astrophysics at the University of Cambridge, and he currently holds the title of Astronomer Royale. Martin also co-founded the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk at the University of Cambridge, and he's thought and written a lot about the risks we face from advanced technologies in the future. Martin is also a member of the House of Lords and is a former president of the Royal Society. He also recently appeared on Sam Harris's podcast, and so to speak to someone like Martin really was a true honour. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a second to hit that subscribe button and also like the video. Doing so will really help many more people view this episode. So thanks for watching the show, and I hope you enjoy. So I read that you grew up in the Shropshire countryside. What was your childhood like there? Well, really an idyllic childhood in the countryside in a small village near the Welsh border in Shropshire, uh, where my parents uh, started a small boarding school in an old mansion, so I had to run of these wonderful grounds. So it was a very pleasant childhood. How would you describe yourself as a, as a child? Were you scientifically curious or...? I was scientifically curious, um, and I had a rather solitary upbringing, um, living in this village, um, but uh, I was interested in numbers, um, but uh, not especially in astronomy. You mentioned your parents. Do you think they had much of an influence on your, your career and your, your life? Well, they were teachers, and of course they encouraged me, and uh, I realised how much I learnt uh, from uh, just being the child of educated parents. You went on to study mathematics at Cambridge. What was, um, as an undergraduate, what was that yes. experience like? Well, I, I went away to a boarding school myself and then got into Cambridge, and um, I proved to be quite good at maths, and therefore I was told to uh, apply to Cambridge to study mathematics which I did, but in retrospect, um, I didn't enjoy being an undergraduate doing mathematics, and I rather wish I'd done a range of sciences instead, because my later work has really been science more than mathematics. So my undergraduate years weren't very productive, because I knew I wasn't mathematically inclined like some of my contemporaries, who clearly ended up being mathematicians. So was it at the PhD level that you switched over to kind of more cosmology? And but I was lucky to get a place um, as a research student in Cambridge in a group that uh, was doing cosmology and relativity. And I was also lucky because this was a time when new things were happening. It was when the evidence for the Big Bang uh, first emerged, that was in 1964-65, and people first started talking about black holes um, and other advances. So it was an exciting 
time and I always give young people the advice that if they want to pick a topic they should pick a topic where new things are happening, new discoveries, new techniques etc. They can therefore be among the first to think about new ideas rather than in a sterile subject where all you'll be doing is trying to do the problems that the old guys got stuck on and uh, you won't get very far. So I was lucky really to be in a field that was um, opening up at that stage. Um, and I've been even more lucky really to fast forward that in the last, the most recent five years, there's been just as much excitement in astronomy um, with the exoplanets orbiting other stars, the James Webb telescope and all these things. So it's a very exciting area for new, new people because of the new data and also more powerful computers. So what were some of those new ideas and, and techniques that were coming out in the yes. 1960s? Well, in the 1960s, there was a big debate actually centred in Cambridge about whether there was a big bang that started the universe off or whether it was in a so-called steady state where it was expanding but new galaxies formed in the gaps as the old ones moved apart. And the leading expert on the steady state, the leading proponent of that, was uh, uh, Professor Fred Hoyle, um, who was the professor of astronomy here in Cambridge, and um, his main opponent was uh, another Cambridge professor, Martin Ryle, who found the first evidence that was uh, really inconsistent with the steady state theory. And so that debate was going on. And the other very important discovery was um, uh, when radiation was detected, infrared radiation filling all of space, which we now know is the sort of echo of the Big Bang. And so that really clinched the case that everything started off in some hot, dense state. How did your research and, and ideas at that time influence these arguments around the, the origin of the universe and, and uh, related stuff? Did you kind of contribute to those questions directly much? Well, I made some contributions. I'm not sure how major they were, but I was in uh, uh, a, a strong research group. And um, I was very lucky in that even while a graduate student, I was able to go to some international conferences and get plugged in and meet the leading people. And um, uh, I've always done science in a rather interactive way in that uh, I've enjoyed collaboration um, and following the debate. And so I think I claim I've contributed to the debate in a number of topics, even though I may not have made distinctive individual contributions. I saw that your supervisor was Dennis Skimmer, who um, yes. was also the supervisor of Stephen Hawking, yes. uh, David Deutsch, and uh, I think himself was also supervised by Paul Dirac. Yes, that's so right. So what influence did he have on you? Well, I mean, he, he was really excellent and inspirational. I mean, uh, he manifested the maxim that a great coach needn't be a great player because his individual science wasn't all that distinctive, whereas he did, as you imply, uh, have a, a stable of uh, very good students, first in Cambridge, which I was privileged to be part of, and then he moved to Oxford in the 1970s and had David Deutsch et al. there. Uh, so he was really someone who encouraged everyone. He was well-networked and he um, uh, uh, had a feel for what's important, and I think he steered us all in good directions, told us who to talk to, etc., and generated a very lively atmosphere. One of your colleagues for a number of years as well was, was Stephen Hawking. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit about that and your interactions with him? Yes. Well, Stephen Hawking was two years ahead of me, and uh, when I started, he was uh, um, uh, 
getting somewhat disabled. He walked with two sticks, etc. And he'd been told he had this disease, and indeed it was um, thought he might not finish his PhD when he started. And uh, of course, as we know, he went on for more than 50 years after that, becoming uh, a celebrated uh, scientist and uh, uh, a popular icon, as it were. And I um, uh, knew him from the start, really, and of course kept up with him because he was always based in Cambridge, uh, and I was in Cambridge most of my career too. And so um, we kept up all the way through. Although, um, in terms of uh, uh, research, um, he was more sort of mathematically inclined, whereas I was more concerned with interpreting uh, data and physics. So we um, didn't have the chance to actually collaborate, but of course uh, I knew him all through his life. I think I read in a piece that you, you push his wheelchair into his office sometimes and uh, open a book for him, and uh, you kind of knew him quite closely, I guess. Yes, well, uh, he, yeah. there was a time when we, we worked in the same building, and uh, I certainly remember pushing him in his wheelchair and uh, opening a textbook for him, and this was actually when one thought he was on the way out, but he then uh, absorbing ideas from uh, this textbook on the field called Quantum Relations Dynamics came up with one of his best ideas. Uh, and so he really kept going uh, ever since that time. So he, he was remarkable in his achievements. Would it be fair to kind of say that what you've done throughout your career has been maybe split into a few different parts? You've been, a, been an astronomer and a cosmologist. You've also been a Kind of thinker about technology and the future and, and risk to humanity and then maybe thirdly you've been just a kind of general public science communicator would you think they're the kind of three roles that would describe your career i think so i mean of course um uh, I, i've been an academic scientist professionally um until my retiring age um but uh, uh i've been lucky in that astronomy is one of those subjects where there is public interest and I think more generally, the two sciences where there's public interest um, and public support are astronomy and space and um, evolution of biology and the natural world. Um, these are things where there are lots of amateur scientists, etc. And I think it's easier for us to uh, uh, gain public interest than, say, if you work in, uh, in genetics or nuclear science about which the public is rather ambivalent because they have downsides as, as well as benefits. So I, I've been in a subject where there is public interest and uh, right from the start um, I've uh, done some public work. In fact, when I was still a graduate student I gave a, a talk on the, on the radio. And we, uh, they had a series of talks mainly given by professors but I gave one when I was still a student. So I made an early start in doing that sort of thing. and. Um, in later life of written books in, in that sort of area. Um, as regards more general activities, um, I was um, always somewhat politically engaged uh, from the time of uh, CND demonstrations, etc. And um, in the 1980s, I uh, got involved in uh, something called the Pugwash movement, which was uh, concerned with um, uh, nuclear disarmament. And uh, it was started by scientists who had been involved in making the bomb and other scientific work in World War II. Um, and they were all getting old. And I thought it would be sad if there was no one to carry the torch, as it were, uh, when they were all dead, as sadly they are now. 
And so I got involved in that sort of area. Of course, even though I clearly never had the credentials which they had, uh, I felt it was important to get involved with that. Um, and um, this was really in the 70s and 80s. Um, but uh, later, especially um, in the last 20 years, um, I got much involved in politics and policy issues. Um, uh, one reason is that I became uh, president of the Royal Society, which is an academy for all of sciences. So I had um, actually a, a duty, and not just a pleasure, to uh, learn about science and policy, not just in my own field of astronomy, but across the, the whole board. And uh, so I enjoyed that. And uh, then I became a member of the House of Lords as a sort of crossbench person, and that again gave me an opportunity. So I have been involved increasingly in my old age, as it were, in um, uh, uh, policy questions. And as a byproduct of that, one thing I've done since my retirement is to help set up a centre here in Cambridge to study extreme technological risks, um, where uh, we worry about um, the risks from misuse of technology, bio, cyber and AI. And also we worry about uh, um, other threats which are caused by humans collectively because the one point I like to make is that um, there are now 8 billion people on the earth, far more than ever before, each with a heavier footprint on the environment than people had before. And so for the first time, this one species, the human species, has the uh, possibility of changing the entire ecosphere, the entire planet. And that's, of course, manifested in concerns like climate change, loss of biodiversity and things like that. So in our centre we discuss that sort of issues, the risks we're causing collectively, and also the uh, um, dangers of misuse of technology, powerful technology, by just a few uh, bad actors, as it were. Let's look at some of these kind of different roles you, you've, you've occupied, then maybe one at a time, starting with um with your, with your work as an astronomer as, and cosmologist, what have been some of the most interesting problems you've worked on as a research scientist throughout your career? What has yes. sort of captured your attention the most? Uh, well, I think um, in my earlier career, uh, this was after we realised that black holes probably existed, um, I did quite a lot to try and understand how some of the puzzling phenomena we observe in the universe could be explained by processes involving black holes. I mean, for instance, um, when it was possible to make observations from space, we discovered that there are lots of objects that are radiating not just visible light, but uh, X-rays, which are much more extreme radiation coming from extreme conditions, and also radio waves have uh, been observed uh, by radio astronomers. And um, uh, I work quite a lot on trying to understand how these extreme phenomena, more extreme than just ordinary stars, uh, could be explained uh, by um, uh, gas swirling into black holes um, and magnetic fields forming, etc. And uh, it was good to actually do these theories and see the data evolving. And sometimes I was proved correct. In other cases, I was proved wrong. But that was one of the strands of my work uh, really, and it continued because uh, uh, new classes of um, objects have been discovered, things called uh, gamma ray bursts and fast radio bursts uh, in the last two decades, and that's something I've kept 
kept working on. Uh, the second area really was um, uh, cosmology and the formation of structures because uh, we have strong evidence that the universe was once very hot, dense, amorphous gas and as it expanded and cooled then at some stage it started uh, um, fragmenting as it were instead of being uniform gas gravity pulled together structures which made stars and galaxies and um, uh, I worked quite a lot on how and when that happened, uh, why galaxies existed uh, as characteristic objects with a particular size and things like that. So um, that's a kind of topic which um, I wrote some of the early papers on back in the 70s and uh, it's continued and of course it's been hugely advanced, not by me but by a huge number of people in the last 10 or 20 years by the Hubble Telescope and the James Webb Telescope and by uh, measuring the background radiation etc and also by the ability to use computers to do simulations which are really um, very accurate and you believe the results. Um, in the old days um, you couldn't do simulations except in special cases a perfect sphere or something like that uh, whereas now the kind of computers that are used for weather prediction can also be used to study the cosmic weather as it were, uh, how galaxies form when a cloud of gas pulls itself together um, and how it fragments into stars etc. Um, and so one can actually do these virtual experiments in a virtual world of the computer um, even though of course astronomers can't do real experiments, you can't really form galaxies or crash, crash them together or explode stars and so these Simulations have been very, very important in uh, understanding how galaxies formed and evolved. And in parallel with the advance in computing has been the advance in uh, observations and uh, spectacularly in last year from the James Webb Telescope, which is able to uh, look back in time, uh, looking very far out into space, um, to the era when the galaxies were first forming. So we can now uh, actually observe 98% um, uh, of the time back to the Big Bang by looking for very distant galaxies and, uh, and check our theories. What are some of the most difficult problems we still have to solve in astronomy, astrophysics, cosmology? What are some of the big questions remaining? Well, I think on galaxies there's still a lot of detail. We don't understand the big picture, but... Uh, um, well, when galaxies start to collapse, there's very complicated feedback. Stars form and explode, and that heats up the gas, etc. And so I think um, uh, there'll be an interaction between better data and better modelling to firm up our ideas there. Um, if we think of uh, other new areas, and perhaps the most exciting development to many of us, and many of the younger uh, colleagues in my group, um, is um, discovering planets orbiting other stars, exoplanets. Um, the, the first of these was discovered um, in the 1990s and uh, we now know that most of the stars we see in the sky are orbited by retinues of planets just like the Sun is orbited by the Earth and the other familiar planets and this makes the night sky much more interesting as it were although the planets of course um, are much 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 fainter than the stars and so it's very very hard to observe the planets we only had some indirect observations and some other crude observations of, of the nearest ones. But 
this field where again the um, James Webb telescope and the next generation of big telescopes on the ground, in particular a European telescope we built on Chile, which will have a mirror 39 meters across. Not one sheet of glass, but a mosaic of 800 bits of glass. But that will collect so much light that it will be able to get a crude spectrum of the, um, uh, the light from a, again, a star um, orbited by planets and detect the light from the planets and separate it from the light of a star. And if there's a planet like the Earth, which uh, has vegetation on it, it might be able to get evidence for the existence of life and the biosphere around some of these planets. So I would say that's a very exciting development observational in the next 10 or 20 years. So I know one of your interests has also been extraterrestrials. You mm -hmm. think that the search for them is an important mission. Why is it an important mission? Well, the best answer I can give to that is that uh, uh, when uh, people uh, who I sit next to on the train or taxi drivers, that's like, uh, if they know I'm an astronomer, that's always the first question they ask, are we alone? So it's the question that most fascinates the wide public, I would say, and uh, uh, it fascinates me too. And uh, uh, any kind of life in space would be a great discovery. At the moment, um, for all we know, uh, the origin of life, which still isn't fully understood, uh, could be a very rare fluke that happened on the Earth but didn't happen in many other places. Um, and it's important to realise that although we understand Darwinian evolution over three or four billion years from simple life to the complex biosphere of which we are a part. The actual origin of life, the transition from complex chemistry to the first replicating, um, metabolizing entities we say are living, that's not understood at all. And so we don't know whether it's a rare fluke or whether it happened in lots of other places. But of course, um, the realization that there are literally billions of planets in our galaxy around other stars, um, many of which may be like the young Earth, does make us wonder because uh, if the origin of life was something which is still a mystery but will be explained, then it could be that life got started on many other planets. And uh, the question is, did it then evolve as it has on Earth into a complex uh, ecology and did it even lead to um, uh, civilization with technology and uh, that of course is the motive for so-called SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence and um, there are some programs to do to do this to uh, um, look for some sort of um, uh, uh, artificial artifacts in space or, or transmissions that uh, can't be explained from any natural source and uh, um, the, I'm involved in uh, uh, committees that are promoting researches. Um, I'm not holding my breath for success, but it's so important that it's, it's worth doing. Um, but I think to, to um, expand on this, um, I often ask, what would you expect aliens to be like? And my answer is that if we detect evidence for some kind of intelligence from beyond the Earth, um, it won't be a flesh and blood civilization like ours. It'll be um, some sort of electronic system. And uh, the reason I say that is um, uh, if we extrapolate the uh, future of our Earth, and not just think about its past, it's taken about four billion years for our biosphere to evolve from the primordial soup 
we've had technology for a few hundred years, and maybe we have it for you know, a, a thousand years or so. But I think most of us expect that within a few thousand years, we'll be usurped by superintelligent electronic entities. And they will have billions of years because the uh, um, sun is less than halfway through its life. So the future is longer than the past. So now imagine that there was another planet like the Earth, which had evolved in the same way as, as has happened here on Earth, uh, then um, it probably wouldn't be synchronized. It might have had a head start of a billion years. It might have lagged behind by a billion years. If it lagged behind by a billion years, obviously it would still hardly have any vertebrates on it. You know? uh, whereas on the other hand, if it was a, a billion years ahead, if it was a planet formed around an older star, and there are many older stars, uh, then it might have gone through the stage of a flesh and blood civilization and uh, may long ago have uh, been usurped by electronic entities. And those entities won't evolve by, um, uh, there'll be an evolution, they'll evolve by what I like to call secular intelligent design. And um, uh, they may not want to be on the planet, they may prefer zero G, and if they're near immortal, they won't be daunted by long interstellar voyages. And so um, uh, it would be a big coincidence if we detected other synchronized in time, so we saw a flesh and blood civilization, far more likely that if we detect something which is suspiciously artificial appearing, it would be um, something electronic, uh, which is um, a legacy of uh, a long dead civilization like ours. And so uh, my betting is that if um, SETI has any kind of success, it would be in finding some sort of uh, uh, robots and things like that. So. Um, the chance of um, two-way conversations with it would be um, uh, um, even less than many people hope. And of course, remember that uh, if there is um, a flesh and blood civilization um, which we try to communicate with, uh, then uh, it will be many light years away. So no scope for snappy repartee, as it were, because it will take decades to get a signal both ways. Is it possible that these entities could be actually a further level up from electronic entities, perhaps some kind of different substance. I don't quite know what I could imagine, but... Yeah, absolutely. I think that's very important because that links to um, uh, something which I always try to emphasise, which is that um, there may be deep aspects of reality which our brains just can't cope with. Because we know a monkey can't understand quantum theory. And in the same way, there may be important um, processes or important phenomena in the cosmos, which our brains just can't appreciate and aren't aware of. And so one of those might be um, ways in which complexity could emerge um, over and above the two we know about. One is uh, uh, what biology does um, to uh, allow immensely complicated um, uh, creatures to exist. And of course, the kind of uh, electronic complexity that we're now starting to be able to manufacture ourselves, but there may be other things far beyond that, and that's why in any astronomical observations, I think we should keep our eyes open for anything that looks surprising, because uh, it may be something which is a complete mystery to us. I've had a few conversations with people about this, and they, they reflect something that I think you, you've said before, which is um, people often 
just see humans as the culmination of intelligent and intelligence and don't imagine these entities beyond it strikes me that perhaps this is like similar to the way that we used to think that we were center of the universe mm. people kind of think that humans are the, the culmination and there's nothing beyond that but like you say there's perhaps unimaginable things yes. left to, to get to yes well, that's true because our, our conception of space has a uh, hugely expanded you know from the time when people thought the earth was the center they didn't know about our entire galaxy they certainly didn't know our galaxy was one of uh, billions of galaxies um, so uh, our horizon in space has expanded and also our horizon in time because we now um, uh, have very good arguments that the Big Bang happened about 13.8 billion years ago and the earth formed about four and a half billion years ago those numbers uh, can be justified one or two percent precision uh, but also we know enough about stars uh, to know that the sun is less than halfway through its life um, and that uh, other stars will last longer and uh, um, the galaxies will last much longer still in the expanding universe and um, uh, uh, in fact I'd like to quote Woody Allen who said eternity is very long especially towards the end um, but certainly uh, as you say we are not the culmination and uh, uh, Many people who are happy about Darwinian evolution somehow think we are the culmination, we're the top of the tree, but we may not even be the halfway stage in the emergence of ever more uh, wonderful complexity in the cosmos. Do you have any other thoughts about where we may, where humanity may end up in the future, or you know, scientific discoveries we we may make that may seem similar to this to, to people you even kind of scientifically quite literate that seem a bit counterintuitive and weird and bizarre um you know like the idea that we're going to turn into these these very unusual beings what are some other ideas thoughts on the future you have that would strike the average person or even someone quite interested in science as seeming a bit woo-woo but actually you believe to be true <laughs> yes well of course by definition uh these are things we don't know about so one can't give a reliable answer to your question but uh, uh i think um uh, predictions of the future have never been very reliable um, but uh, it's easier to estimate the direction of travel than the rate of travel in some new technology and if, if you look back if you look back um, over technology in the last century for instance um, let me let me give two examples um, uh, uh, civil aviation um, 1919 was uh, Alcock and Brown's first transatlantic trip 50 years later, 1969, was the first flight of a jumbo jet. And 50 years later, we still have a jumbo jet. So there, 50 years of rapid progress, and then 50 years um, where things didn't change very much um, because of uh, economics and public demand, etc. That's one example. Um, but uh, another example where things have changed much faster than most people predicted um, is the um, advent of um, all the implications of smartphones, um, the, the, the internet, um, social media and smartphones um, and uh, a world where um, everyone anywhere in the world, even in Central Africa, has access to the world's information. And uh, that, that's something which happened, I think, faster than most pundits expected. It happened in um, less than 20 years um, and that's been transformative. Um, and uh, um, 
people, some people did speculate about about that, but uh, they didn't think it would happen so so quickly, and uh, they didn't imagine a, a world where in Africa um, uh, people who um, may not have a toilet have a smartphone, and uh, because some technologies get very fast and uh, have economies of scale, whereas others don't. Um, so I, I, I just think we can't predict in detail. But I think we, one thing which we can expect, which will lead to various ethical problems, um, is um, bioengineering. Um, because um, we understand the human genome, and uh, we can already remove single genes which are responsible for some diseases, like Huntington's disease. Um, what may be possible later in a century is to uh, understand um, the genes which optimize other human qualities that people may want to encourage. Uh, these may not be single genes, but they'll be thousands of genes, so it's going to be hard to discover them. Uh, but it may by then be possible to um, synthesize a genome with those optimum properties, and people think this will lead to some sort of a redesigned, enhanced human beings. Um, I think we have to be careful about this because the basic ethical issues about introducing a fundamental new kind of inequality. But also, I think the people who do this uh, uh, caution that um, uh, if you try and um, produce an artificial genome, it may improve some things, but it may have hidden downsides as well. Uh, so I think um, uh, there's going to be very, very cautious attitude towards that sort of thing. But I mean, to digress slightly, um, one of the other questions that I'm asked about a lot is, um, will humans go to Mars? And um, uh, my line on this, in fact, I wrote a book about it last year, um, is that as robots get better, the practical need for sending people into space gets weaker. Because the robots can, do, can, can assemble structures and uh, although they can't yet do it, robots will soon be able to do the kind of geology on Mars that a human astronaut could do, and of course be sent much more cheaply and uh, uh, much more safely. Um, so that, that may happen. Um, but my view of human spaceflight is that <clears throat> no taxpayer should be asked to pay for it, because if NASA or ESA does it, then it will um, have to be um, very safe because they're sending civilians into space we're, we're paying for, uh, then we've got to be risk averse. And that'll make it very, very expensive. And one has seen that NASA became very risk averse in its, its uh, more recent projects. Um, so my, my scenario is that uh, the first people on Mars will be risk takers, excepting they may be having a one-way trip and paid for by the billionaires, Messrs. Uh, Musk and Bezos. Um, who could uh, launch thrill seekers, happy to accept a very high risk, just as people do if they do round the world sailing or hand gliding and things like that. Um, and if that leads to a small colony of people living on Mars by the end of a century, in great discomfort, because it's, it's worse than living on the ocean bed or the South Pole, um, then those people will be away from the regulators and they'd have every incentive to adapt their progeny to that very hostile environment. So uh, if a sort of post-human species is to emerge, I think it's going to emerge from the enterprise of those crazy pioneers out on Mars. 
Uh, but I don't think they'll have a mass emigration of uh, ordinary humans to Mars because um, um, it's um, not a way to escape the Earth's problems. Dealing with climate change is a problem, as we know. It's a doddle compared to making Mars habitable and terraforming Mars. Uh, so I think the only people on Mars will be um, uh, risk-taking pioneers. But of course, if they have access to the technology from the Earth, then they may uh, modify themselves and even create electronic entities which would then prefer to be under zero gravity and would go on into the blue yonder. So what to you does a, does a great future look like for humanity and perhaps the opposite, what does a, what does a bad future look like for us? I suppose we, maybe you can reference some of um, the greatest, greatest risks you think we face and how they could produce a bad future. Yes. Yeah, what are the two sides to this? Well, I think in, in the near term, uh, using the technology that we now know about um, and uh, can reasonably predict, um, things are getting very dangerous um, because uh, we're in a networked world where um, uh, problems like things like pandemics can cascade globally. And of course, we know that um, uh, COVID-19 was a global disaster. There could be far worse natural pandemics with a higher fatality rate. Um, but worse still, uh, it's possible to um, engineer a virus to make it more virulent or more transmissible than the natural ones. And um, that technology is understood by many people. And my worry is that uh, there could be a few bad actors who try to do that. The only people who want to do that are fanatics who, for instance, think that uh, humans are polluting the world and let's get rid of them all because uh, you wouldn't know who would get killed. But there's one person like that is too many. And um, that, that's one of the dangers. And of course, there is a, a risk of um, societal breakdown if we get too dependent on the computer networks because uh, cyber attacks um, could then become more um, widespread, etc. That's a, a long answer to why we're going to have a bumpy ride through this century because um, these technologies, um, especially those which um, allow a small number of people to do something which could cascade globally, bio and cyber examples of that. This is, uh, this is really something that is going to be very hard to deal with. And the other um, issue is going to be whether we can avoid climate change getting so serious that it is, uh, it is a catastrophe. Um, and the big challenge there is to um, ensure that the global south um, can uh, reach net zero. We in the north um, should be able, able to, to get enough renewable energy um, and storage, etc., that we can achieve net zero. Um, but um, if we think of the, the Global South and Sub-Saharan Africa and parts of East Asia, um, they now don't use much energy at all, uh, but they're going to need more energy, unlike us, if they're going to develop. And we've got to ensure that they don't follow the track that we did and leapfrog directly to clean energy, um, just as they leapfrog directly to smartphones who never had landlines. And so this is, I think, something where um, the global north has to take the initiative um, 
in um, doing R&D to bring down the cost of clean energy and in using collaboration with the Global South so that they can afford to, to make this leapfrogging directly. Um, uh, otherwise, that's another uh, dangerous century. So um, the way things evolve in the century is hard to predict, um, but there are these dangers. And uh, just uh, as a digression for that, um, I, I think it's interesting, one point I make in my book is that um, despite the horizons being much more extensive in both space and time than they were in the Middle Ages, for instance, um, our planning horizon is not longer. And I give the example of the medieval cathedrals, uh, where um, uh, people built cathedrals that they knew would not be finished in their lifetime, long-term cathedral thinking and planning. Um, and they were thinking 100 years ahead at least. And of course, what they created uh, in many cases now inspires us almost a thousand years ahead with the great cathedrals. Um, uh, and it seems slightly anomalous that they planned a hundred years ahead, whereas we don't. But it's not so paradoxical actually, because in the medieval times they may have thought that the world would end in some apocalypse within a thousand years, but they thought that their children, their grandchildren, would lead lives similar to theirs. Um, and that they would appreciate the Finnish cathedral. Whereas I don't think we can be at all confident about the preferences and tastes of uh, uh, people two generations down, which um, things are, ch are changing so fast. And so that's really uh, a reason, if it's not an entire excuse, for not having as much long-term thinking now as in the Middle Ages, despite the fact that we've got these far larger horizons. It's genuinely hard for us to predict uh, what things will be like in 50 years time. So I mean that's a, that's a look at some of the dangers, especially some of the dangers from technology that we face. What If we were to think of a really positive future though, firstly it would be to avoid those risks, but um, what other features do you think a great future could have, perhaps from technology or the use of AI? What, what could we change to uh, take advantage of the technology in the next few decades to, to make it extra, extra yes, better? Yes. Um, well, I think, uh, again, one can't predict it, but uh, what would be an aspiration, probably very hard, yeah, would be to uh, um, ensure that the 8 billion people in the world today um, all have lives um, as, as good as we do. Um, and th that's going, going to be hugely uh, um, challenging to do that. Um, and uh, so um, e even without new developments, um, uh, life is pretty good for um, people who have enough money and live in the northern countries. And um, the aspiration obviously should be to provide at least that kind of life for everyone. And uh, that's a big challenge, but it's, it's not impossible. And um, I think there are obvious um, developments in, in medicine to deal with the infectious diseases and all that, um, which will help us all to make sure that they to help us all and not just the global rich. Um, so I think we can uh, imagine that the challenge is to, to get everyone up to the kind of level that we enjoy, a big challenge, and also to hope that we can then move forward um, in uh, uh, abolishing the worst diseases, etc. I think you said that Demis Sasabis is maybe one of your heroes. Um, yes. And you know, the work, the deep mind. Let's just look at AI for a second. What positive 
changes to the world do you think that AI could bring? Um, well, I think it can analyze huge samples of data. It would, uh, um, it can deal with electricity grids and uh, uh, traffic control. Um, and um, as I say in my book, um, the Chinese could have a planned economy of a kind that Marx could only dream of because they have uh, uh, records of every transaction by private people, etc. Um, and uh, uh, they can process that with a computer um, in a way that was completely impossible and made planned economies fail in the past. Uh, so to do that, um, and um, it can do boring jobs of all kinds. Um, but I think the short-term problem is that um, uh, computers um, can re replace certain kinds of work. And uh, um, of course, it is in principle a good thing if they can replace um, um, heavy labor uh, and also um, mind-numbing jobs like um, uh, working in a telephone call center um, or an Amazon warehouse and that sort of thing. Um, replacing them by machines would be great. Um, provided that uh, there is employment for those who are displaced. And, um, uh, and I think um, what we need to ensure is that um, uh, the conglomerates which uh, manage these things, the big, the big companies, um, are properly taxed um, at a much higher level than now, and that most of that tax should be hypothecated for jobs where being humor is important. Carers for young and old, um, custodians of public parks, gardeners, and things like that. Jobs that can't be, um, uh, be, be automated um, and which can be done by people without special training. And we know that one of the, um, the worst social evils now is a lack of people to care for, the, for, for young and old um, uh, in their last years. Um, and uh, um, if more people could be paid for that sort of work out of taxation, um, this would be a far better society. And um, this requires a political shift. And um, in general politics, um, I think one of the problems in this country is that we learn too much from the United States and not enough from the Scandinavian countries, which have a higher tax rate and a better welfare service and happier people. Um, and, uh, uh, and they're moving in the right direction. We are moving in the wrong direction. Um, but uh, I think what we need to do is to um, ensure that human beings all have dignified and secure employment, doing the kind of things where being human is important, like being a carer. And uh, the reason I say I think this is plausible is that if you look at the way rich people spend their money, um, they spend it on having humans to help them and support them. And if you can provide something more like that for the ordinary person, that would be better. And, and, uh, um, and so if the repetitive and mind-numbing work is replaced by machines, that's plus provided that the money saved is then channeled towards dignified posts for people who are carers. Have you had much of a chance to speak to Demis Sasabis and, and maybe visit DeepMind and any insights there? Yes, I've been privileged to know Demis and his senior colleagues at DeepMind. They've had quite strong links with uh, Cambridge University. 
and I admire him immensely, um, not only for his technical achievements, but for his, his attitude. I mean, he's a brilliant man, and he says with a straight face that he wants to understand the universe, and he thinks the best way to do that is to solve the AI problems first, and then the AI can help him. But his aim is to actually do uh, um, discoveries in science, and of course, what's so wonderful is that what he's already done, uh, the fact that um, uh, the um, AI uh, which he has developed can not only play world-class Go and chess, etc., but can uh, do better than humans at practical problems like uh, uh, understanding the shape of protein molecules and all that. And there will be other areas where it's going to make a, a big advance. So um, I think um, he's one of the uh, real idealists um, who combines that with brilliance and uh, uh, and I hope that um, the takeover from, uh, by Google uh, won't sort of uh, snuff out the idealism which uh, uh, DeepMind has. And there was a um, one issue when um, they had set up a, uh, an ethics committee to address the um, use of uh, medical statistics from the NHS and that was abolished when they were taken over. Um, but uh, uh, I, just, I just hope that the ethics of AI remains at the forefront of the mind of the key people in the, in the um, industry. As you say, Demos thinks that maybe to solve the hardest problems, we need to solve AI and then AI can help us. No, throughout, that's right. your, throughout your career, have you heard that much from other people um, when you've been working on difficult problems thinking, maybe, maybe a computer would be most helpful here. Is yeah. that... Is that an idea you've actually heard much? Or is it well, I think we all have that. I mean, I, yeah. I, I certainly feel that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, oh. and, um, uh, and of course, to expand on this, um, there, there may be some fundamental problems in physics um, which are just too difficult or too long for a human being to solve them. To take one example, um, uh, string theory, which is one of the uh, ideas of a unified theory that you know, links together gravity and the forces of the micro world. Um, we've no idea if it's correct, uh, but we do know that um, uh, it'll be very hard to check it because um, uh, it involves geometry in about 10 dimensions. And it could genuinely be the case that it's correct, but no human being could work out this complicated geometry in their lifetime. And so it's conceivable that we would have uh, a machine which could be fed in the basic parameters of this theory and could work things through. And if at the end of that process, it spews out the correct mass for the electron, the correct strength of gravity and things like that, we would know that it, uh, uh, the theory had something going for it. Um, even though um, no human scientist would get the sort of aha insight, which you get if you um, develop a theory um, entirely in your own head and it seems obvious in retrospect humans will never have that feeling but they, they may um, in some of these contexts uh, um, know that the theory is correct and they can trust its implications if the machine spews out the correct answers correct numbers for many features of the world so back to a few kind of questions about yourself you've obviously been thinking for a long time about risks and dangers to humanity. How does that weigh on your own mind? Does that keep you up at night? Well, not particularly. It does make me feel very lucky um, to live in a part of the world 
where we escape the worst consequences of the downsides, I speculate. Um, and I, I think one wants to try and make people aware of um, uh, the fact that we have a, a privileged class of people, and indeed everyone in this country is privileged on a global perspective. And so uh, I, I tend to feel that um, uh, I'm very fortunate. Uh, so although I worry about the uh, global prospects, in other, I, do, I do feel that I have an obligation to try and draw attention to them because I'm one of the lucky ones. And you've, you know, you've, you have quite a remarkable list of uh, achievements. Really, you're, you're currently the astronomer royal. You were the 60th president of the Royal Society. Um, you're also in the House of Lords. You're Lord Rees of Ludlow, mm -hmm. and you've been a master of Trinity College, Cambridge. Which of these has meant the, the most to you? If does any any of these stand out? Any of these titles? Um, well, I think uh, um, most of those jobs are sort of semi-honorary or part-time. I mean, I think most of my uh, effort over my lifetime has been more focused on uh, um, uh, research and teaching in astronomy and physics. Um, but I've been very lucky um, that uh, having retired, um, I've been able to uh, work just as hard as before, but with the difference that I can pace myself. I mean, uh, uh, when I was in charge of Trinity College or Royal Society, etc., then it's a certain responsibility. You don't want to screw up. Uh, whereas uh, uh, now um, uh, I work as hard as I can, um, but I'm not responsible for any significant organisation. And, and so uh, that means that I, I'm more relaxed and just do as much as I can, realising that as I get old, I may be able to do less. Now that you are retired, if, if there is a typical one, what's a typical week like for you? What do you get up to exactly? Well, of course, um, uh, during the... Covid shutdown. It was very, very boring doing lots of zooms from home, etc. Whereas uh, uh, now it's um, uh, um, being based in a university which treats retired people humanely. Uh, so I still have a, um, a desk in the Astronomy Institute and a little office in Trinity College, and so I can go in um, and um, interact with people um, and uh, um, socialise with them and keep in touch with. Uh, developments in the university um, and also um, I, I go to London one or two days a week for House of Lords or, or other things. Um, I probably will cut down on international travel because uh, uh, I've realised that um, Zooms are adequate for um, some purposes for which one used to do international trips and also I think flying is becoming a, a less attractive prospect because of uh, um, more security and all, and all that. Uh, so I'll probably never do as much uh, travelling as I used to go six or eight times to the US and lots of other travelling. So I'll, I'll do less of that. But other than that, um, I will go on having um, a varied life, um, but uh, benefiting from the technology does allow me to give lectures to um, India, China, South America, places like that, which I probably wouldn't uh, travel to very often anyway. How long have you lived in Cambridge for now? I've lived in Cambridge, I suppose, most of my, my life. Um, well, well, most of my adult life. I mean, I, I grew up in, in Shropshire, um, but when I um, graduated, um, I spent five years, um, this was my late 20s, 
um, uh, travelling, uh, had short-term jobs in the US and went to, uh, went to lots of meetings, etc. Um, but then I got a professorship at Sussex University um, when I was about 30 and then very quickly moved back to Cambridge. And I've been based in Cambridge ever since then, but doing a variety of things, being a researcher, head of a department, a research professor, and then head of a college, and then just a uh, retired person. Uh, so uh, uh, Cambridge is the place where I've spent most of my life. Have you ever thought about moving to a different university or place, or has it just been so so lovely here in Cambridge? I've, I've never thought, because I, I think uh, uh, Cambridge is a very special university, because um, it's, a, it's a great research university, and also I think Cambridge and Oxford are special because they combine being great research universities with having the virtues of what Americans call liberal arts colleges. These are small colleges to do undergraduate work and, um, uh, and I think offer the pastoral care that people get in the college system, but which you don't get in most big universities. So I think they are, they are very special and um, I think to be part of the community in Cambridge um, uh, where you can do good research and also have everyday contact with people from all different subjects in the arts and arts and the humanities as well as in science. Uh, that's a wonderful opportunity, and I didn't want, didn't, don't want to move. Um, I don't want to lose the contact by by leaving Cambridge, um, and uh, I've never felt tempted to uh, defect to the U.S. I, I went on short trips and I rejoined to universities, but. Um, uh, I think I find the, the culture there so alien. I mean, just think of their, um, their policy on, on guns and prisons, etc. And there again, we can learn far more from the Scandinavian countries uh, than from the US. So as a final question, Martin, someone actually thought I'd maybe start today um, to end every episode with is to ask the guest for their take on quite an old philosophical problem and question, which is, what does it mean to you to live a good life looking back on on your life what would that mean for a for a human to live a good life i suppose the s simple answer really is to uh, um, uh, to leave a positive legacy behind uh, so that uh, um, if you're remembered at all you're remembered for having done positive things um, rather than uh, negative uh, that's a, not a very high aspiration, but that's an aspiration which you could all strive for to have left a positive influence. Well, thanks very much, Martin. It was lovely to, to visit you here in your home and a real honour to come and speak to you today. Thanks okay. for your time. Well, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you enjoyed the Human Podcast, please consider subscribing. I hope to see you soon.